You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Following Locke, we have some radical departures from Hume and Rousseau, who push some of the weaknesses and inconsistencies and latent possibilities in the Lockean philosophy further than he wished to go. And it's then Immanuel Kant, the great modern synthesizer, who puts all the pieces together. As a warm-up for Hume, I should just mention really one of the most delightful but strange philosophers in his theory, and that is of Bishop Berkeley. One of his phrases has been immortalized, to be is to be perceived. Berkeley himself was an Anglican bishop who, seeking to preserve a sense of God and God's action in the world, actually put together a more radical form of Locke's empiricism with Christian faith. The basic idea is, once Locke admits that the substance is an unknown X, and all we have are the contents of our own mind, sense perceptions. Barclay says, well, why even retain substance? Let's just say to be is to be perceived. And thinking and experience is a matter of a certain order and regularity in our experience which Barclay says we can attribute to divine agency. Although it's an odd philosophy bringing those two things together, and certainly in that form did not survive long, these acids of skepticism which the modern age is bathed in. Barclay's view, I should say, though, did set a model, a new paradigm for science which is used up until this day. It's used in a form of philosophy of science called phenomenalism. And it's been repeated in a number of variations. The idea that science is nothing but ordering into laws and theory is nothing but a super law of the succession of sensible experiences and impressions. We don't have time to dwell on that one. We will now push on to Hume's thought, which takes the leads of Locke and Berkeley and pushes them to their bitter conclusion. Hume wrote a number of works. His Treatise of Human Nature is a massive work, something like Locke's essay, which he said fell stillborn from the presses, and he was not happy with it. He reiterated it later in two smaller treatises, The Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding and An Inquiry Concerning Morals. We find, again, treating both of the issues of epistemology and ethics. I will focus on the matter of epistemology, but say a few words about the ethics. Hume begins with two great axioms from modern philosophy, one from Descartes and one also in the spirit of Descartes, but I think more from the Lockean side. The first axiom is this, only perceptions are present to the mind. Hume lets that sink in. Only perceptions are present to the mind. That radical idealism, going back to Descartes, that I don't know things, I'm not in communion with the world. I don't have a fundamental orientation to being or what is separate from myself. But I only know what's in my own head. That sets up those insoluble paradoxes of representation that I've mentioned. 
Hume will take this out and play with it from a hundred different directions. Only perceptions are present to the mind. And then he adds another axiom, whatever is distinct is separable. So you see, at the end of Hume's analysis of experience, we have nothing but free-floating impressions. One of my professors, the late Tom Prufer, said that these impressions are neither impressions to someone nor impressions of something. That's where Hume says all of this is going, is we just have free-floating impressions, because I don't know there's a self, I don't have an impression of the self. I say I only have an impression and I don't know if there's a thing attached to it, so it's this strange view of the cosmos that there are free-floating impressions and that's all. Now, it was in the treatise on human nature where Hume just goes around and through and looks at all the implications and absurdities of this view. It's a more compact and well-ordered account in the inquiry concerning human understanding. He takes those axioms and then sets up the following criteria for understanding. The meaning of terms reduces to sensation. This is like Berkeley's phenomenalism. From what impression is the supposed idea derived? That's what Locke set up. Locke didn't do it rigorously enough. Now again, this is problematic from the outset, which later critics of Hume will point out, to presume that the meaning of a term must be reduced to sensation is by far an adequate account of human experience and meaning. Or phenomenologists will point out, how can one even have these sensations available to us without a public world of things and people? But just following along Hume's hypothesis, we must find the meaning of terms by reducing to sensations. And then, here will be the break point that leads to Kant. The truth of propositions depends upon the source of the proposition. Is it a priori, independent of experience, or is it a posteriori? Does it depend on experience? Hume sets this fork in the road for truth. We either have what he calls relations of ideas. These are a priori. It reduces to mere logical truth. The tautology, A equals A. A bachelor is an unmarried male, so an unmarried male is unmarried. That doesn't tell you anything. It's just taking the idea and doing relations of identities. In taking the Cartesian side, Hume says, well, this truth is necessary. This is necessary truth. But it's necessary because it's empty. It doesn't tell us anything. The contrary is a contradiction. Descartes was right to set up that standard of necessity. But Hume says Descartes and Leibniz, Spinoza, they were wrong to think you could spin out of ideas any extension of knowledge. All you get is logical symbol and tautology. So on the other hand, we will have our a posteriori truths that depend on experience. He calls them matters of fact. Matters of fact, or empirical truth, are based on association of perceptions in experience. The truth is not necessary because the contrary is always possible. Now what he means by possible is it's conceivable or imaginable. Now it's association of ideas. For Hume, that's what intelligence reduces to. An elaborate, and he has various ways of explaining association in terms of cause-effect, endurance over time, but it is simply nothing more than association of ideas. Pavlov's later experiment on dogs is the classic account of association of ideas. For Hume, the mind doesn't get much far beyond that in principle. 
ring a bell, bring food, ring a bell, bring food, ring a bell, bring food. You start to associate the ringing of the bell with the bringing of the food. And Pavlov's dogs would salivate upon hearing a bell. Now Hume points out that humans know at least this upon reflection, that there's no necessary connection between the ringing of the bell and the bringing of food. Hume takes that arbitrariness of connections and says all of our knowledge of nature is that arbitrary. We think there's more necessity there than meets the eye. I hit the billiard ball, it hits another billiard ball, I anticipate the motion. But Hume says when you analyze it down by my axioms of perceptions present to the mind, whatever is distinct is separable, you'll see there's no reason why I think that law holds. I can never know why a fact is. I just know that it is, and as Hume will famously say, I can imagine the contrary. The sun will rise tomorrow. How do I know that? He says, I don't. I anticipate it. It's possible that it doesn't. So Hume extends the notion of possibility to say that anything that I conceive the possibility of shows there's no necessity at all. There's a deep flaw in this form of reasoning, both as an account of philosophy of science and its logic. But he's following out the rigor of the idealism. He's following out the rigor of the rationalism and the demands of mathematical necessity, seeing no other kind. But to move on, here's where we come to Hume's great problem. Human understanding then is shot full with non-perceptual factors. If seeing is believing, literally, then there are many things that I have no strict certitude for. I mentioned this earlier in my criticism of Descartes. And this is what Hume is reminding the philosophers of, although in this extreme form. Why do I stand here on the second floor when I don't have the absolute certitude that the floor is going to collapse in? There's an element of trust, anticipation, custom. But here are the three great things, the non-perceptual factors, the being of things, substance. See, Hume says there is no ground whatsoever, rationally, empirically, for the notion of substance. I close my eyes and you may be gone. I had a drink at a drinking fountain, but I don't see it now. Maybe it's gone. The independence of things, the continuity of things, all of these refer back to a notion of substance or being. And Hume says, I have no sensation or impression for it, so it's not a legitimate term, scientifically. Secondly, the power of a cause, agency. Do you see the power? No, you don't see the power of the billiard ball. I don't see the power of heat or the flame. All I have, if I'm going to be literal-minded about impressions, is I put this white sheet in this orange flame thing and it goes on fire. But Hume says, I have no real explanation of the causal power. And then the third thing is the uniformity of nature. Hume brings up what's still treated as a classic problem in philosophy of science, the very idea of cause and generality, the uniformity of nature. Why should the future resemble the past? Why should this lemon be like that lemon? The problem of induction, all of these come spilling out of Hume's criticism. Now to keep moving on here, here's Hume's solution. Custom fills in the blanks and impels us to believe in beings, causes, and nature. So Hume says in section 5 of the inquiry, without the influence of custom we should be entirely ignorance of matters of fact, 
beyond what is immediately present to the memory and senses. It's custom. It's a psychological mechanism. Custom spreads vivacity or immediacy from present perception to absent and just fills it all in. The practical resolution that Hume makes is that one can't be a pure skeptic. One must be a moderate skeptic or live what he calls the mixed life. It still circles around Descartes and the fundamental dualism. If you look at that chart from Meditation 6, the two worlds of the natural teaching of pleasure and pain corrected by science. But science must come back to the natural attitude to get its bearings for what benefits it can provide. Hume does something similar. Philosophy must correct common sense. Common sense corrects philosophy. In the end, practical life and instinct must rule over reason and theory. Hume's politics are of a conservative bent, radical in this epistemology and metaphysics. Again, he traced out the impossibility of a full proof for the existence of God, denied miracles. Hume was a terror when it came to religious matters, although he was not outrightly atheistic. He saw the epistemological problems with any claims about the transcendent order and so on. Well, what this leaves then, you see, the mixed life going from the everyday view which is mistaken, the belief in things, it's dogmatic and arbitrary, he thinks, it'll be corrected by science with these verified laws using evidence. The skeptic, of course, sees if you push it all the way, it becomes a fragmented world, the free-floating impressions. Actually, I have Professor Prufer's line here. It's even better. He says, free-floating impressions illuminating nothing for nobody. That's what Hume sees modern philosophy gets down to. But the result would be all human life would perish, all discourse and action must cease. Those are lines from Hume. So we recoil into this mixed life of the mitigated skeptic with enlightened opinion. There's more humility at this point. But philosophy becomes but an amusement. Science is just a probable thing which can help us master nature, and there is no metaphysics. Well. On this basis, Hume says, we'll take him in two directions. On the level of understanding, when I said he was a terror for religion and metaphysics, at the end of his inquiry concerning human understanding, he has this shocking passage. When we run over libraries persuaded of these principles, what havoc must we make? Take in our hand any volume of divinity school or metaphysics and say, does it contain abstract reasoning of quantity or number? No. Does it contain experimental reasoning, science concerning matter and fact? No. Commit it to the flames, for it has nothing but sophistry and illusion. So Hobbes sees the skeptical line and mathematicism of modern philosophy, finally admitting that Descartes' project does do away with the poetic, the philosophic, the religious, anything that can't be reduced to logic or science. Now, as I said, Hume does back off of that extreme and develops a theory of morality. I'll just briefly say his great axioms concerning morality are number one, that reason is and must be the slave of the passions. See, we have this reduction to impression and the central. So he thinks reason must be a slave or scout for the passions. But he thinks he can build up something positive in morality on the basis of sentiment. He says, although murder and various moral norms refer to no objective state of affairs, they refer to our own sentiments of disapproval. 
And here Hume assumed there would be a universal disapproval of certain acts that violate the liberal code of protecting life, liberty, and property. Adam Smith was a great admirer of Hume because Hume talked about the importance of sympathy and mixing together my own self-interest and the interest of another and working out an approval for what is for the general welfare. It's this transition between moral sense theories and utilitarianism that puts Hume in a transition period. But it's really Kant who will bring back or try to solve once and for all the epistemological problem and the moral problem at one blow. But before getting to Kant's solutions to Hume's skepticism, I need to mention one other important figure to set us up for understanding Kant. And that figure is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau is sometimes left out of these histories of philosophy. He's certainly put over with the political theorist. But I would say that Jacques Maritain includes Rousseau in his great trilogy of the modern founders with Luther and Descartes. Leo Strauss, whose notion of the ancients and moderns I'm using in some respect, says Rousseau represents the second great wave of modernity. If the first is Machiavelli, and we see the rippling effect through Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Hobbes, Locke, a new thing comes up with Rousseau. He radicalizes. He takes a step further the modern principle while criticizing modernity. Again, just to briefly state it, it's this, that Rousseau said Hobbes and Locke were looking for the state of nature and found it in self-preservation and human passion and desire for acquisition of property. Rousseau said they didn't go far enough. If you push nature further, he says you will find a notion of evolution that human beings must begin as more simple, ape-like creatures who live in a more passive existence. And it's only through social structures that humans begin to evolve and develop the attributes given to them by Locke and Hobbes. So Rousseau finds a more radical notion of nature. If nature is beginnings and not telos or end, if it's not the high perfection of the citizen, the philosopher, as it was for the ancients, the moderns push nature back to the beginnings. You see, Rousseau has a point. Why do we begin with bourgeois man? Let's go back even further and entertain the notion of a more primitive man in part because Rousseau actually does have an admiration of ancient virtue and says the moderns all talk about commerce, Locke, Hobbes, and Adam Smith. Let's talk about virtue again. But see, he wants to get a new notion of virtue based on this modern non-teleological notion of nature, pushing it back even further and so what we get with Rousseau as a new thing is the notion of history and a general will of society replacing natural right. Or Rousseau will come to call it self-legislation. This will be a big impact on Kant's ethic, that ethics is about self-legislation, or another word is autonomy giving the law to oneself. If modern philosophy, we see the abandonment of nature and God, that is, teleological nature, and the divine as a standard for human life and ethics, we now see really what's at the core is not just a reduction of nature, say, to the self-preservation, 
but the deeper reduction is to self-determination and autonomy. That's what Rousseau introduces. Now let's return to Kant's solution of the moral problem and now venture into his treatment of the epistemological issue. The influence of Hume and Rousseau on Kant is something that Kant himself vouches for. Again, there are some famous lines. Kant says, for example, Hume awoke me from my dogmatic slumber. So Hume is his mentor on the problem of knowledge, although Kant will give it a new solution. And on the other hand, he says, Rousseau set me straight, Kant says, about the common man and about morality. So Kant's great influences are Hume and Rousseau. Hume, whose skeptical doubts about knowledge awoke Kant to the problem. He will take that fork in the road, the problem of the relations of ideas and matters of fact, and try to find a third option. From Rousseau, he doesn't buy into the notion of the more radical state of nature, which in Rousseau's hands involved limited desire, lack of reason and speech. But what is in the state of nature of Rousseau is that man's essence is to be free, to be perfectible. And although Rousseau speculates it's by moving through a middle-class or bourgeois-type society to a new type of society in which the general will will allow people to be free and to legislate for themselves, Kant takes out that notion of universality. So how does he do this? We'll try to put Kant the best we can in these two half-hour segments, starting with epistemology and then ethics to see the final unity or synthesis of modern philosophy, which although Kant is writing in the late 18th century, it will take two more centuries to keep poking at that synthesis of Kant to see how it will also come undone and come unglued. Well, we'll begin with the epistemology. Kant was very much taken by Hume's skepticism and really what would amount to the destruction of science. If we really don't know causality, if we really don't know nature and its uniformity, science is doomed. So on the other hand, Kant says, yet we know. We do know. How can we deny Newton? How can we deny Galileo? We've got to set back and find a new possibility here. And it's what's been called the transcendental turn. Transcendental doesn't mean to move up to the divine or to God or something separate from the world. But in this school of German philosophy, transcendental means to look at what makes something possible. It's looking into the conditions for possibility of knowledge. That's Kant's new phrase and new project. What are the conditions for the possibility of knowledge? And it results in a system that's called transcendental idealism. He retains the fundamental Cartesian idealism, the starting with the contents of the mind, with a fundamental doubt and uncertainty about its relation to things. And see, Kant takes that as the triumph of the mind. He sees that as the positive thing, what he will call a Copernican revolution, although Descartes had already done it, been there. Kant just puts it into a new form. That is, rather than starting with things, we start with the mind. You know, Emerson, the American essayist, will later say in a passage on experience following Kant and the modern project, that earlier we began in our naivete with things. We lived in the world. But he says, now we've discovered the mind and everything tumbles in. 
So Kant wants to give a more solid expression to this idealist framework for scientific knowledge and then marry it to not the modern project in its technical mastery, although he doesn't exclude that. With Kant, by way of Rousseau, we may get the last finishing touch. He sees that mastery is not about selfishness. He baptizes it with a higher moral purpose, that the modern project is essentially about autonomy. It's about human autonomy. It's about the dignity of the human being who can give the law to himself, who can make his own plan and projects, live morally, recognize a community of equal persons. We find in Kant this elevation into the final synthesis of the modern project. But let's back up before seeing how the ethical and the epistemological turn on the same pivot to find that pivot. It goes something like this. Now Kant is difficult. His massive book, The Critique of Pure Reason, although I've once said Spinoza may be the hardest, I think I'll still stick by that. Kant's Critique of Pure Reason is a close second. It is a massive book. At least it has a structure that is a little easier to discern and the arguments inside, while not easy, follow out a rigorous logical plan. I am going to track, though, his shorter work called The Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics, and then make some reference to some of the fundamental divisions in the Critique of Pure Reason. In The Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics, let me just outline for you some of the basic moves and distinctions that Kant makes. The most important one is his overcoming of Hume's fork of the two possibilities of relations of ideas which are necessary but empty and a posteriori matters of fact which are contingent. Kant's great formula is there must be a synthetic a priori. That's his new language. Synthetic means it puts together and tells us something. Hume said anything that was a priori was analytic or just takes apart ideas, tells us nothing. If you want something synthetic, it's a matter of fact, but that's contingent. You see, here's Kant's great new idea. There's a third thing. There's a third possibility. That is the synthetic a priori. Something that is a priori, that is, is prior to experience, is based just on the idea, for that reason has necessity, but it's also synthetic. He admits up front we're not concerned with things in themselves. So Kant will now formulate and put into a definitive form this idealism of modern philosophy. He says, we do not know the thing in itself, the ding on zick in German. We don't know, and we're not concerned with the thing in itself, but merely with things as we can experience them, as objects of possible experience. The sum total of these experiences is what we call nature. So he asks, how is it possible to know a priori the necessary laws regulating things as objects of experience? This gets very technical in his approach, but it is what sets that final synthesis. So here's another formula he has. What I mean to show is how the a priori conditions of the possibility of experience are at the same time the sources from which all the general laws of nature must be derived. Now, what is this that he's talking about? Let me flip over to the critique of pure reason and point out 
three areas, what he calls the transcendental aesthetic, the transcendental analytic, and the transcendental dialectic, these big ponderous German categories we have to make our way through. The transcendental aesthetic is on forms of sensibility, that is, time and space. The analytic is about concepts and principles of understanding, causality, substance, community. And then the transcendental dialectic is what's traditionally called metaphysics, or what Kant will come to call ideas of pure reason. Now where all of this is aiming, the prolegomena to the future of any metaphysics, will be that metaphysics is not possible. Metaphysics is a transcendental illusion. It's subject to contradictions. And it's because we can know nothing about metaphysics. We close the door once and for all. But what we can know are empirical things, that is, things that are impinging on our sensibility, the empirical, what we can sense. See, that's what he calls the transcendental aesthetic. We can know them insofar as we can structure them according to these patterns of intelligibility, which we must think derive from our own rationality. See, we're not making any claim that this is how nature in itself is. Kant says that's an absurd question. All we can know is how we are impacted by things and how we are able to structure them into orderly patterns and make science possible. That's sort of the overall summary of what we're doing as we work through Kant. He says experience is a synthetic linking or association of phenomena or perceptions in a consciousness. You see, there's the Humean side. But on the other hand, he says, judgments are conditions. We need to make judgments. That's a condition for bringing images into consciousness. See, we need some rules prior to even having experience. These rules, insofar as they present cause, effect, substance, See, here's Kant's idea that I can't think any other way than in terms of substance and cause-effect, because those are the basic judgments that I have. He uses a table of logical judgments. It's part of the very nature of grammar, he says, to say X is Y, the ball is red. So Aristotle wrongly thought that grammar reflects being what is. Kant hedges that in and says, no, judgment is something your mind does. So I guess the popularized form is it structures or imposes upon an undifferentiated world its basic categories of experience. See, Kant will go on to say in the prolegomena, he says, I understand perfectly the concept of a cause as a concept belonging necessarily to the mere form of experience. See, it's the form of experience. I can't experience anything unless I'm predisposed in some way to have this category of cause and effect. It's a possibility for experience. That's what I can understand, Kant says. I don't understand how a thing in itself can be a cause because the concept of cause does not at all mean a condition attached to things, but only attached to experience. You see, once this glue gets on you, you just can't get it off. Once you make that transcendental turn and start making these qualifications and that fundamental separation, it's impossible to get off. I keep saying it's attached to experience, not to things. Experience can only be objectively valid knowledge of phenomena. See, what appears to me and their sequence in time, insofar as the antecedent can be united to the consequence according to the rule of hypothetical judgment. See, that's the next form of judgment. If substance comes from 
It's just the way we speak to say X is Y. Another form of judgment is if X, then Y, hypothetical. So Kantir says, okay, I see cause-effect is a condition of the possibility of experience and talk. You know, I've got to talk about cause and effect. But again, he'll say, I don't have a notion of a real cause. That notion is unintelligible to me. This is going quickly through the basic ideas here, but he'll go on to say the use of concepts then must be limited to experience. Here's where we're going to get the pivot point. Cause-effect must be restricted to experience of temporal things, of billiard balls, and nothing else like free will or God. It's got to be only a matter of what I can experience, of what is phenomenal. Because he says, here's the transcendental term, that concepts are not derived from experience, but experience is derived from them. See, this completely reverses the mode of thinking that never occurred to Hume, although Hume is in the right path, according to Kant, seeing it's the subjective capacity that fills in the gaps because of custom. Kant taking the same basic solution of Hume, only he's now going from just an empirical psychological trend or quirk, see, and casting it in that rationalist school. He's overarching it with the Cartesian, Spinoza, and so on idea that it's not just mere psychology, an empirical matter. He says, it's logical, it's necessary, it can't be any other way. This is the very meaning of experience. So you see, the pivot is we must restrict concepts to phenomena. So a phrase from Kant's prolegomena would be when we rightly regard the objects of sense as mere phenomena, that is just an appearance, we admit that each such object is based upon a thing in itself, of which we are not aware as it's constituted in itself, but only as it's known through appearances. That is, by the manner in which our senses are affected by this unknown something. See, there's Locke again. See, Kant is just bringing it all together here. Descartes, Hume, Kant, and giving it this magnificent structural form, the critique of pure reason. So what is nature? Nature, he says, in its material sense, is possible by means of the quality of our senses. In keeping with this quality, our senses are affected in a particular manner by objects that are unknown in themselves and are entirely distinct from these phenomena. See, Hume would say the essence of modern philosophy is that alienation of the mind from the thing or what Descartes called in the meditation, I had two theses, the similarity thesis and the existence thesis. Certainly the similarity thesis, that things are similar to my perceptions of them, is snipped by modern philosophy. And this is what Kant is bringing into its final form. So nature in its material sense is this transcendental aesthetic it's just how I'm affected in my sensibility. Nature in its formal sense, he says, are the sum total of the rules to which all phenomena must be subject if they are to be considered connected. It's possible by means of the quality of our minds, by referring all images to a consciousness, thinking according to rules is possible. You may imagine it's something like this. Kant is a philosopher of limits. The limits of the possibility of knowledge are simply phenomena. What's on the other side of the limit? We still have this dualism, idealism, that trilogy that we see in Maritain, rationalism. Or to get that trilogy right, it's idealism, rationalism, and dualism. Those are the ones Maritain traces back to Descartes. We haven't overcome them at all. We've just got them locked into place now with a greater solidity, working out some of the metaphysics and ethics in this final synthesis. 
But the limits are, we know sensible phenomena. We draw one limit and say there's the thing in itself. It's always receding from me, totally alien or other, I know it not. And it's still an inconsistency that remains, you know, this question, well, how does the thing in itself affect me? Isn't that a form of causality? I have to assume that. I'm going beyond the limit. Just don't think that, Kant will say. The other side of the limit, of course, will be the thinking self. The cogito is back. See, no longer the psychologized self of Locke and Hume. We now must posit what's called the transcendental self, which must be noumenal, not phenomenal. But if it's noumenal, he says, I can't know it. But I must assume it, because it accompanies all thinking. The very idea of nature is that it can be referred to a unified field of consciousness. So there must be some unifying power. But again, the term soul is gone or a notion of mind and the sense of the anima. No, it's just put down as a limit. I say it, but can't think it. I mean, that's what Maritain says is the fundamental contradiction of modern philosophy in his great work, The Peasant of the Garan, is he says, we put it in parentheses, things and self. So we can say it, but not think it. It's just an absurdity, but it works out this problem. Now, to wrap this up before going on to ethics, see, despite the loss of the world and self, see, Kant in some way thinks we can retrieve that through ethics. And that's why we get the final synthesis. But before getting there, let me say then, if the transcendental aesthetic is on forms of sensibility, how we're affected by things, the analytic is our rules for structuring it together, nature as formal rules. The transcendental dialectic is metaphysics, and Kant says, now I figured out why there's metaphysics, but why there isn't metaphysics. There's a disposition of the human mind to think about metaphysics. Kant admits that it's a fate humans can't escape to ask unanswerable questions, but they lead into speculative illusions. Reason urges understanding on. It's never satisfied with present knowledge or just the scientific phenomenon. It broods over his own concepts, Kant says, and passes beyond experience to seek completion. Not satisfied with conditioned and partial truths of science, it wants the unconditioned and absolute. It figures if the conditioned is given, the unconditioned must be given. If we have the partial, we must have the absolute. So Kant says, I understand why you're going there, but you can't, not speculatively. It's an illusion. We think there's a substantial self, a complete or ultimate subject that's not a predicate, following out all X is Y. Isn't there an ultimate X that's a subject? And he says, no, that's an illusion. You can't know it. There's a limit, so don't worry about it. Hypothetical judgment, isn't there a first cause or complete set of cause-effect that we call the world in rational cosmology? And he says, no, you can think it, but not really. And finally, he says, with the disjunction, either X or Y, isn't there some complete complex of possibility and perfections signified by the term God? And Kant says, no, it's an illusion. You see, it's like a combine out in a field is there to cut the corn. But metaphysics is like a mad farmer who cuts through the corn and then just keeps tooling through a barren field. The mind just keeps spinning. But when it reaches the limits of science, he thinks it's spinning into emptiness and it's meaningless. So he says, metaphysics is over. The ideas of pure reason are without object or meaning because the concepts only function within experience. They're only to interpret sensibility. The concept without phenomenon is empty. The pure idea go beyond the limits. 
and Kant works all these antinomies and contradictions to show metaphysics is a hopeless tangle of knots. The most these metaphysical ideas can do is regulate our understanding, you know, to give science some structure of cause-effect and keep searching, 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 knowing it will never find an ultimate cause or a big bang. But here's the pivot now to our next and final section on Kant. The critique of pure reason is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it limits the mind to empirical science and mathematics. But here's where Kant the believer comes in. He says it repudiates the audacious assertions of materialism, naturalism, fatalism. It's an agnostic position, ultimately. Soul, God, and free will. Maybe I can't prove, but I'll also say they can't be denied. The scientist, too, the materialist, is going beyond the limits of reason when he says there is no God or no soul. I'm just saying we don't know if there is or is not, but here's the pivot for next time. Kant says, I've denied reason to make room for faith. The restlessness of reason can be channeled into moral action. The purer ideas will become postulates of practical reason. So although he says he denies reason to make room for faith, we'll see what he has in mind is certainly not the traditional faith of the Bible. It'll be a new faith, a faith that comes in some way from Rousseau and the Emil. It's the rational belief that gives support to human autonomy and human dignity. And that's why Nietzsche will call Kant the great delayer. He brings something back into focus. But whether that final synthesis can stand is the great question as to whether the modern philosophy is satisfactory or whether all the iterations of postmodernism and postmodern world have some truth to them. So next time we'll look at Kant's ethics. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.